If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. The markets will swing based on a combination of both you know, fundamental and what we call technical factors. And as analysts, you know, I consider our job to see through the noise and really think about you know, what is a company worth? What do we consider to be the intrinsic value of that company based on how much cash flow we think that company is going to be able to generate you know, over the course of its entire lifetime? And the technical side, and we don't really spend a lot of time focused on that, but you, know, you can see what they call like risk on, risk off sentiment, you know, you can see a lot of momentum. But as long-term investors, you know, we're really looking for where we see a difference in the long-term view of that company versus what's currently being priced into the markets. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Inflation, recession, high interest rates, mortgage stress, and cost of living pressures. Just some of the cheery headlines, oh, and I should not forget war as well. These are some of the cheery headlines that we can look forward to in 2023. Or is the future looking a bit more benign? To discuss in the first fresh episode of the year is Dave Sakara, who is the Chief US Market Strategist for Morningstar. Hello, Dave. Hello, Phil. Thanks very much for joining me today. Now, Dave is the author of Morningstar's Stock Market Outlook for 2023, which I'll link to in the blog post and the show notes. And I just wanted to note before we started that we're recording today on the 12th of January and the latest inflation figures have just come out, which does have a lot of bearing on what we're going to be discussing today. But first off, let's look back to 2022. How was it in the markets from yours and Morningstar's point of view? Well, it was definitely a tough year in the U.S. markets and one of the few years that you see in which both equities and fixed income suffered you know, relatively large losses. So when we look at the broad U.S. market, we use the Morningstar U.S. market index and it was down almost 20%. And then looking at our broad fixed income market, you know, that was also down 13%. Now, having said that, I do think that you kind of need to also put that into a bit of a historical context over the past couple of years. And so we'd noted, you know, you had some relatively large gains in 2020 and 2021. And in fact, by the end of 2021, you know, we had noted that we thought that many of the mega cap stocks were really rising out too far too fast and that the broad market itself had become overvalued. So to some degree, the losses last year I think the beginning part of the year, that was really just coming back down to more normalized valuations. But by the end of 2022, you know, I think the pendulum has actually now swung too far to the downside and that the markets are actually undervalued in the US. So you, you mentioned and referred to the fixed income markets there. Now, that's that's basically bonds, isn't it? And um, we always hear about the 60-40 portfolio as being one of the, the cornerstones of um, any portfolio. And some of that's in fixed income and some of that's in um, in equities or the, the majority in equities. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the factors behind 
the fixed income side of the portfolio doing so poorly? Because historically, that's never really happened too much. Well, it's uh, similar to the equity market where fixed income just became you know too overvalued. So when you look at the U.S., you know, like the ten-year U.S. Treasury rates, you know, coming into the year in 2022, you know, I think the ten-year was yielding about one and a half percent. And of course, that was you know significantly below you know the rate of inflation at the beginning of the year, and inflation in the U.S. did continue to keep you know ticking up throughout most of the year. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fixed income market because um, coming in as a newbie into this um, this area, I just didn't realise how much uh, influence and how large that particular sector is. And um, I might bore listeners a little bit by going on a bit too much about this sector. Um, But really, the interest rates, is it to do with the interest rates um, prevailing in the economy at the time that has made this sector underperform? Yeah. And really, you know, when you think about bonds, I mean, the real big differentiating factor with bonds is that you have you know, a fixed coupon on there and you have a set maturity date. And so when you think about bonds, you know, the best thing that can ever really happen as a bond investor when you buy a bond you know, at par, which is you know, 100 cents on the dollar, is you, know, you get your coupon every six months. And then at the end, at maturity, you, know, you get that principal payment back. So what happens is that as interest rates are going up, you know, the value of those coupon payments that you're getting as an investor essentially become worth less because the new bonds that are out there now have those higher interest rates. So of course people won't be willing to pay as high a price, you know, for the existing bonds. And so that's why you see as yields go up, you know, existing bond prices will come down. Okay, well, let's get back to the equity markets. And um, it's a story of different sectors. Now the Equity markets are chopped up into different sectors according to the industries that uh, companies work in. What what is the, the, your broad overview of the sectors and how each performed last year? Sure, and there's really two ways that I think about the equity market. So, Morningstar uses what we call the nine box style box, and so we break it into you know three different categories. We have growth stocks core stocks and value stocks. You know, growth stocks being those companies that you expect over time will have you know, much faster earnings growth. And so those stocks are you going to be you know, valued more highly in different types of valuation matrices. Whereas value stocks are going to be more you know, tried and true stocks, companies that have been around a long time you know, that are not going to see as much earnings growth, but they're usually less volatile, less risky kind of stocks. And core stocks are really a blend. They usually have some attributes of both growth and some attributes of value, but don't fit neatly into you know, one of those categories or the other. So one of the things that I really noticed this year is how big of a differentiation there was between growth and value stocks. So while the overall market fell about 20%, really the preponderance of that decrease came in the growth category. So growth stocks were down you know, almost 37% for the year. And then those value stocks, they were almost unchanged. They're only down a little bit under 1%. And then core stocks kind of came in in the middle of that. So a lot of people then might be asking, well, you know, why was there such that huge differentiation? And so when you think about growth stocks and you think about what sectors are in there, you know, that's going to be heavily weighted towards you know, things like the technology sector, communication sector, consumer cyclical sectors, you know, those that had the highest valuations coming into the year. And of course, those then were the ones that sold off the most. Whereas the value stocks, you know, those are going to be more defensive in nature. So defensive companies, you know, think some of the uh, the food companies, supermarket companies, you know, things like that. And so they really ended up holding you know, pretty well to the downside. And uh, mega caps played a big role 
in the uh, this downturn as well in value. What's um, um, you talked about a list of nine of which four were on the overvalued list last year. Mm-hmm. So tell us about those. Yeah. So first of all, there really is no you know a streetwide definition of what exactly a mega cap stock is. Yeah, it's so, an it's an interesting um, usage that you've got there. Yeah. 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 So in this case, you know, I look at those companies that have, you know, market capitalizations of over 250 billion US. So the largest of the large, you know, out there, the Apples, the Microsoft, Alphabets, you know, and so forth. And so at the end of 2021, you know, we noted that a lot of those really had become significantly overvalued. So last year in our 2022 outlook, we highlighted 15 that we rated, you know, one or two stars. So essentially those that we thought were, you know, the most overvalued, you know, based on the underlying fundamentals of the companies. Now of that list, you know, nine of those 15 underperformed the markets, you know, in many cases, you know, very significantly uh, on a couple kind of came in you know, in line with the market, but of those, you know, only two actually generated a positive return. So now I'm actually looking at it, you know, from the opposite perspective and looking at, you know, those mega cap stocks that we think have actually fallen too much this year. So there's now nine of these mega cap stocks, and of those mega cap stocks that we think that are undervalued. You know, four of those were actually on that overvalued list last year. So, for example, Tesla, NVIDIA, Bank America, and Broadcom. So, I think, you know, like Tesla is an example where, you know, the market had just become, you know, too far overextended on that name. You know, we thought it was overvalued. I think the stock fell like 70% this year. And now the pendulum has swung, you know, too far to the downside. We think the market is, you know, overly pessimistic on that name. And so now is actually the time that we would recommend investors, you know, to be taking a look at that one. And, you know, if that's something that's right for your portfolio, I think now's a good opportunity to buy it at a relatively low valuation based on its growth prospects. And the energy sector was an area that outperformed last year as well, wasn't it? It was. So actually, energy was the sector that we had noted coming into 2022 was the most undervalued of all the different sectors that we covered. And it really just skyrocketed last year. It was up you know, over 60%. But I would caution investors at this point, with as much as it has gone up, as quickly as it's gone up, we actually think it's now overvalued. And in fact, that's the sector under our coverage that we would say is the most overvalued out of all 11 sectors. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So your report that you authored mentions that the headwinds identified at the beginning of 2022 are forecast to turn into tailwinds in the second half of 2023. What are those headwinds and how can they become tailwinds? So 2023, I think, is interesting in that it's shaping up to be a tale of two halves, you know, the first half versus the second half. So the four different headwinds we identified at the beginning of last year were you know, the slowing rate of economic growth in the U.S., that we expected the Fed to start tightening monetary policy. You know, we noted that inflation was going to be running hot and that we had expected long-term interest rates to rise. 
So as we're looking at those headwinds now, you know, two of those four we think are starting to abate. So inflation is still high here in the U.S., but it's moderating. You know, we think it's already peaked and should slow further now, not only this year, but actually even going into 2024. And then as far as, you know, long-term interest rates, you know, we think the preponderance of those increases are behind us. And in fact, I would expect long-term interest rates to even start coming down in the second half of the year. So that leaves us with the economy and with the Fed. So at this point, it does look like the Fed will continue to tighten monetary policy with at least one or two more you know, interest rate hikes, and then we'll pause to see exactly you know, how much that really takes out of the economy in the first half of this year. Now, we do think that the rate of economic growth will be slowing here in the U.S. We see that the first half is going to be stagnant to even potentially recessionary before it can really start to accelerate in the second half of next year. So really, you know, the takeaway is that, you know, based on a combination of slowing economic growth and then the moderating inflation, I think that's going to allow the Federal Reserve in the U.S. to shift its focus back to its dual mandate, which not only includes, you know, making sure that they keep inflation down, but also fostering an economy that can maximize sustainable employment. So the house view then is uh, recession is, if it does come, is only going to be slight. And I'll just preface this by saying it seems to be everyone seems to be talking about a recession on the horizon and it's the most widely forecast recession we've ever seen but um, (laughs) the house view there is that it's um, not really if it is going to be there coming it's not going to be that bad Short and shallow is how our uh, U.S. economics team is quantifying it at mm. this point. So we'd be looking for you know about like an eight tenths percent decrease in GDP in the first quarter, and then a 0.4 percent decrease of GDP in the second quarter, then starting to accelerate in the second half of the year. So our full year GDP expectation for the U.S. right now is just under one percent at eight tenths of a percent, but we do think that momentum will then continue and carry into 2024. Um, I, I, it's just that I have seen some commentators say that uh, the Fed won't stop raising interest rates until unemployment goes up. And at the moment, the labour market seems to be very, very strong. The labor market has definitely been holding in there relatively well, but it's not necessarily just the number of jobs that they're watching, but I think they're also going to be watching you know, for wage growth. And wage growth has been lagging the amount of inflation that we've seen. So that's going to keep that price wage growth you know, spiral from occurring. And so that's why I think that when the economy is going to be relatively soft with inflation still continuing to come down, you know, that's when they'll be able to kind of get away from that focus that they have right now. I think that they just kind of were surprised last year with how much inflation you know, was not transitory, how much and how hot it really got. So to some degree, I still think they're playing a little bit of catch up. But based at this point, I do think that rates are pretty close to as high as they're going to get. Mm, because in the past, when um, uh, central banks have tried to keep inflation under control, it's been really like jacking up uh, well we we have had uh, very large interest rates increases compared to other tightening cycles but it's still they always seem to overshoot badly causing a recession which then resets everything in the economy but um i don't know you seem to feel like it's going to be more benign than that 
Well, it's interesting, as you mentioned, when you look at past tightening cycles, mm. you know, at least since the beginning of my career in 1991, this is you know the steepest and the most that they've raised. It's very fast, rates, isn't right? it, that they've been doing it? It is. It? Yeah. yeah. But I also think you take a little bit more of a historical perspective and start looking at you know what happened in the 1970s and 1980s. And so if you look at you know what the monetary tightening policy has been now, while it's certainly been you know, a lot more than what we've seen the past couple of cycles, it's actually a lot less than what we saw in the 1970s. 70s and 1980s. Now, of course, inflation then you know did get well into you know the double digits here in the U.S. You know, at this point, I think we only peaked out at slightly over nine percent. So, I think it actually makes a lot of sense when you look at how much they've risen rates at this point, where it's been more than what we've had you know the past couple of decades because inflation really had never gotten this hot really since you know the 1970s and 1980s but with inflation not being as high as it had gotten back then you know they don't need to try and fight it as much as the 70s and 80s stocks are trading at a deep discount you believe or the house view is that stocks are trading at a deep deep discount as you've referred to uh, prior in the interview how can the pendulum swing so wildly uh, well and that is the nature of stocks and stock markets and and human behavior and you know Markets will up. Is that where the psychology is coming into it? It is. <laughs> so, you know, the markets will swing based on a combination of both, you know, fundamental and what we call technical factors. And as analysts, you know, I consider our job to see through the noise and really think about, you know, what is a company worth? What do we consider to be the intrinsic value of that company? based on how much cash flow we think that company is going to be able to generate you know, over the course of its entire lifetime. And so on the technical side, and we don't really spend a lot of time focused on that. I really think that's more the realm of traders and not investors. But you know, you can see what they call like risk on, risk off sentiment. You know, you can see a lot of momentum. You know, when things are going up, people are buying it because it's going up. And when it's going down, they're selling it just because it's going down. And you know, fund flows, options positioning, you know, a lot of things that can move the market, you know, here in the short term. But as long-term investors, you know, we're really looking for where we see a difference in the long-term view of that company versus what's currently being priced into the markets. And so we're looking at you know a lot of those factors, you know, what's driving revenue, how much revenue growth are we expecting, you know, over the long term. We're going to model out, you know, the company's costs, you know, what the operating margins were going to look like and then be able to come up with you know, our view of earnings and then discount those earnings to today. So even though you know maybe a company reports earnings and you can see the stock move you know, a pretty good amount because maybe they beat those earning expectations or miss those earning expectations, you know, from my point of view, that's trading. It's really not investing. What I want to do is say, okay, well, if they missed or they beat, well, why did they miss? Why did they beat? And then take a look at the assumptions that we have in our financial models and determine whether that ends up changing our long-term view of the company. So when we look at those earnings beat and misses, yeah, maybe they can, you know, cause us to move our stock valuations, you know, maybe three to 5% in the short term. But it's really those paradigm changes, you know, those big catalysts where there's a change in the underlying business or the underlying fundamentals that end up, you know, changing, you know, the valuations, you know, well into the double digits in some cases. Yeah, I'm interested to, um, in your comment that um, it's your job as an analyst to see through the noise. And um, that's something that's a valuable lesson for new investors as well, because they're confronted with so much noise in financial media and traditional media every day, aren't they? 
They are, you know, and I think a lot of that is just based on traders, you know, kind of whipping around, you know, the, the PE multiples or whipping around, you know, the stock in the short term. And so as a fundamental long-term investor, you know, it's always incumbent, you know, to really decide, you know, what has really changed here? Is there something that's changing my view on, you know, this company, this sector, which really I should then now, you know, be looking to sell out of the stock because what I expected wasn't going to be something, you know, is going to happen going forward. Or conversely, and, you know, some of the, one of the hardest things in finance is to figure out, well, okay, you know, I bought this stock. I thought it was fairly valued or undervalued at this price. This has now happened. The stock is down, you know, whatever amount, you know, some people say, you know, your, your best loss is your first loss. But if the stock is going down and you really have confidence in your fundamental view, that oftentimes is you know, a very good time to be able to you know, invest more in that company and be able to buy more of that stock at an even lower price. I wanted to talk to you about risk premium. What is risk premium and how do you use that in the way that you analyze stocks? There's a couple of different ways to think about risk premium. So, you know, when we're looking at the stocks and we model out how much cash we think this company is going to generate, you know, each year over the course of its lifetime, we'll then use a weighted average cost of capital to discount that to come up with what we think the intrinsic value of that company is worth today. And then based on the number of shares, you can divide that into the intrinsic. And that essentially gives us, you know, what we think the stock price should be worth in the markets. So that weighted average cost of capital, you know, that's going to be based on your risk-free rate, which in most cases is just going to be equivalent to like a long-term U.S. Treasury rate, but then a cost of debt and a cost of equity. So your cost of debt, that goes back to the corporate credit spreads that a company is going to have to pay in order to be able to fund itself in the debt markets, and then the cost of equity. Now, when we think about the cost of equity, you know, we tie that to what we call our uncertainty rating. So the lower uncertainty in a company we think that the cost of equity is also going to be lower. So a company like, you know, maybe a soda company like Coca-Cola, it's going to be a very steady company year in, year out. I mean, there'll be some changes, you know, in its earnings over time, but it's going to be, you know, pretty steady. And we think that we're going to be able to model that company out over the long term pretty accurately. So that's going to have a low cost of equity in the marketplace. Now, a company that's very volatile, maybe something in the commodity sector where those earnings can swing you know, quite dramatically based on maybe the price of oil or the price of copper, you know, those companies are going to require a much higher cost of equity because it's much more difficult to really accurately be able to price those companies and forecast them out into the future. So you might have a cost of equity of maybe you know, 10% on those companies as opposed to maybe 7 or 8% on the less risky companies. Because I think that's one of the real bases of investing is understanding, and this again, we're talking to beginner investors here, is that the capital that you're deploying into a company when you buy a stock, you've actually got to think about the difference between the risk that you're taking on compared to risk-free just putting it into you know a, a, a bank deposit or something like that that's just paying a fixed rate of interest. Isn't that one of the basics? It is. And, you know, you always kind of think about it from an individual investor point of view. I always think that you should start off, you know, with investing in, you know, the less risky investments 
And you know, as you're able to start building up your portfolio, you can start taking you know, additional risk. So you might start off with you know having you know, enough money in the bank to be able to suffice to you know pay expenses in case you were laid off for a couple of months, and then from there you might layer into you know some longer fixed income securities where you're getting a higher yield on those securities. And then once you have that base, then you can start moving into the equity market because of course you know as you've seen, while equities certainly can provide you know much bigger gains over the long term, you know, you also will have these periods of volatility where you can see the equity markets, you know, fall 15, 20 plus percent, you know, in a year. And so for investors, I just want to make sure they have, you know, the right risk appetite to be able to take those kind of losses. And you want to be able to hold, you know, through those down periods, you know, and not be selling stocks out when they're at the bottom. You know, and have to take those losses because we do believe that over the long term, you know, time in the market is actually going to be you know, one of the largest factors for investors to be successful. So slow and steady then. Exactly. Okay. So another uh, metric that you use is price to fair value ratio. Um, how do you calculate that or how does Morningstar calculate that? Well, we use a discounted cash flow model, and it's you know really remember, what I can say remember keep it simple, keep it simple here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that really gets back to you know trying to figure out and think about you know how much is this company going to earn, and again, we're forecasting how much company cash is going to get generated over its lifetime. So think about like the income statement. So we're going to break down how does this company make money? What is its basis for its revenues? How fast can they grow revenue over time? Do they have certain products that we think will grow you know, extremely fast? Or is this company where their products are going to grow you know, in line with you know, maybe the economy or with GDP? And then we'll kind of have to figure out, well, what kind of cost does it take in order to be able to sell these products and come up with like our cost of goods sold? How much does it take to be able to manufacture these products? And then we can figure out, you know, how much we think the operating earnings of that company is going to be, you know, run that through the model and come up with that cash flow stream. Now, the one thing that is different that we do here that I think a lot of other places may not do is we incorporate what we consider an economic moat analysis. So it's really a very, what I consider to be Warren Buffett type of analysis. So we're looking to see, does a company have specific long-term durable competitive advantages that will allow that company to be able to generate excess returns over the long term? So here we're looking at specifically, you know, returns on invested capital, and we're comparing that to the company's cost of capital. And so the longer that they can generate those excess returns, the more valuable we think that company is going to be. So a company that we think can generate those excess returns for at least the next 10 years, we're going to consider that company having a narrow economic moat. Those companies that can generate excess returns for 20 years or longer, that's going to be a company that can that we're going to rate with a wide economic moat. What are some examples of companies with wide economic moats? Well, let's go back to uh, the consumer products sector, for mm. example. Mm. And so when you think about like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, you know, those are companies that you know, have very strong international brands and people will gravitate to buying you know, a Coke or buying a Pepsi over brands that they have never heard of before. And so when you have people who are willing to pay you know, a high price for that brand over the long term, you know, that is a, a moat where it's very difficult for new entrants to be able to break into that market. So let's um, dig into that uh, economic moat. You talk about the five sources of um, working out the economic moat. Yeah. So the first one is 
you know, those that are the low cost provider within their industry. And it really is just as simple as it sounds, you know, who can be able to provide, you know, the product at the lowest cost. And so, you know, as people are competing, even if other people are, you know, trying to grab additional market share and lowering their prices, that low cost provider will always be able to match that price or even go lower because they'll be able to still make money when others can't. So one example of that might be like in the basic materials area. So if you think about, you know, certain mining companies, you know, based on the geology of the areas that they might be mining, we'll be able to get at those, you know, different products at a price that other mining companies might not be able to get at. Efficient scale would be the next one that I would mention. And again, it's you know a company that is large enough and has you know enough fixed costs that they can make that product you know more efficiently than any other new competitors that could come into that market. So the third source that we look at are intangible assets, you know, those branded assets that people are willing to pay extra for for those brands. But you can also think about other things too, like in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, the patents that people have on different drugs where they can generate you know, excess returns on selling those drugs as long as those patents are outstanding. The network effect, I think that one is really interesting. So the network effect is that the more clients or more consumers that use your product, the more valuable that product ends up becoming. And so meta platforms, you know, the parent of Facebook is one that we always point to for that network effect that the more people that get onto Facebook, the more people that attracts to get onto Facebook. And of course, then, you know, they can use all the digital advertising in order to be able to monetize the number of people that are coming onto that platform. And then lastly, uh, switching costs. So switching costs just means that, you know, once someone starts using your product, and this is you see this a lot in the technology sector, that it just becomes cost prohibitive for a company to be able to move away from that product and switch to a competitor. Mm. Yeah, that network effect is an interesting side of it, isn't it? And um, because we always hear about newcomers coming into, especially the digital space, that are going to be competitors to Meta. But as you say, it's a very difficult thing for users to change. I mean, if you're used to exchanging pictures and stories with your own family, moving to another platform um, really constrains your ability to do so. Exactly. You know, another mm. example might be with uh, Apple. Mm. So Apple you know, does have its own ecosystem of its own technology. And so once people move on to, you know, the Apple iPhone, and then they start using some of the other Apple products, and then they interact with other people using those products, and then they use, you know, some of the different apps out there, you know, it really becomes difficult for people to move off of the Apple network and back onto some of the competitor networks. And so that's why we award or we rate Apple with a narrow economic moat. So Morningstar published a list of 33 undervalued US stock picks for the first quarter of 2023. Um, what are two or three of your, these favorites of yours to talk about? Well, one of the things I always really enjoy about investing is looking for you know, long-term secular trends. And you know, one here that I think is really interesting is a play on the transition to electric vehicles. And when you look at the transition to electric vehicles, in order for that to happen, you know, they all have to have lithium for their batteries. And I know our team has done you know, a, a pretty deep dive you know, into the lithium market. And based on the number of suppliers out there today, based on new supply that they see coming on in mining over the next couple of years, we think lithium is going to be undersupplied for about the next decade. 
And of course, that's going to keep lithium prices, you know, very high. So one stock that we do like there would be Lithium Americas. You know, it trades at a very deep discount to our fair value. Now, it doesn't have an economic moat yet. And I would note that it is a, a, a higher risk in situation and probably better for, you know, investors who are willing to take that kind of risk. But it does trade at about a 70% discount to our fair value. So I do think that provides a very large, what we call margin of safety from our valuation you know, for investors. Yep. And that's something for investors to consider as well as that um, when we're talking about a commodity, the value of a stock is really based on the price of the commodity itself that's being produced, isn't it? It is. And so that's why when we see lithium being you know, so undersupplied for the next you know, decade, that gives us you know, a lot of confidence in our call on that one. And what about Alphabet? Alphabet is a you know it's a stock that has been under a lot of pressure you know lately, and I think this is one where the market is looking at this you know short term softer growth you know specifically in their digital advertising. This is Google, isn't it? The Google parent company. It, it, as well, it is exactly. Yeah. And you know advertising rates have been coming down, especially you know with the economy now starting to look like it's getting softer here you know in the U.S. again and, and globally, in fact. But we think the market is you know over penalizing that company for this short term weakness. Now this is one of our more differentiated calls out there. Uh, we do think the company has a wide economic moat. That's going to be based on a combination of its intangible assets and its network effect. So again, you know, it's certainly you know, common parlance here in the United States. When someone's talking about looking something up, you'd say, ah, just Google it. Mm. So again, you know, it definitely has you know, that brand and also the network effect. So again, the more people are using Google, but not only just Google, but you know, a lot of its other platforms, you know, think YouTube, you know, it definitely builds that network effect. Mm. So with the different platforms, you know, it's able to build a, a technological expertise and search algorithms, and I think machine learning. So I think that's going to help, you know, be able to build and uh, deliver more value for advertisers over time. Yeah, because that's been one of the themes that's been discussed over the last couple of weeks that um, artificial intelligence and chat GPT in particular will maybe breach that moat again. Well, there's always that possibility. But, you know, we do think that generally we're still in, like the 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 early innings of kind of a long-term shift in digital advertising mm. and Google, I would say, you know, is one of the strongest platforms out there. And we do think that, you know, they will be able to develop new ways over time to be able to focus their advertising onto those target markets. So I do think that that is one where you could still see, you know, some significant upside in the price in that company. You know, right now it's trading at about a 45% discount to our fair value. Yep. And ServiceNow is another company that you've been looking at. It is. It's uh, another one with a wide economic moat. And the moat here is really going to be based on high switching costs. What does ServiceNow do? It provides uh, service desk software solutions for mm -hmm. different corporate functions. And so once a company moves onto it, gets all of its employees you know, onto that network, you know, it's very difficult to be able to move people off of that network within that corporation. Mm. Now I'd note, you know, the company has performed in line with our expectations for you know the past year, but its earnings growth has been hampered by foreign exchange translation. So this is one where I think now the market is again over extrapolating you know, too much to the downside, and we do think that you know this company is going to have you know relatively rapid and organic growth over the next couple of years. In fact, I know our analytical team is looking for a growth rate of over 24% for the next five years. 
also generates probably some of the strongest free cash flow margins you know within the software space and then lastly i do think that it also has one of the better balance sheets out there so i do think that you know even in you know any kind of potential economic storm you know they're going to have the liquidity to be able to ride that out so could you also talk about some long-term structural growth themes and stocks that are leveraged to that theme because these, these, again, are sure. t- these are tailwinds, aren't they? This is, um, you know, a following wind. Yeah, so another one is, you know, when you think about what's happened over the past, you know, two years, well, three years now since the beginning of the pandemic, is that there was a huge shift in consumer spending. So certainly in 2020 and even in 2021, you know, consumer spending shifted away from services and into goods. And now with, you know, the pandemic, at least here in the U.S., really fading into the rearview mirror, we're seeing that consumer behavior normalize and shift back into those services that people hadn't been spending on for the last couple of years. So in like the travel industry, we think all the cruise lines are undervalued. Uh, One that I would highlight there is going to be Carnival Cruise Lines. We also see that the airline space is undervalued. Uh, Southwest Airlines has had some negative publicity with some operational difficulties recently, which has pushed that stock price down. But that's one that that's um, that's putting it that's putting it very nicely. (laughs) Well, and again, this is a an opportunity where you know you can take a differentiated view from the marketplace in that. Mm. You know, because it had you know some of this negative press because there are operational difficulties and the stock gets pushed down, you know, we don't think that that really changes kind of the long-term value that they bring in the airline market, especially for kind of their target audience for travel. So we do think that that will recover you know over time. Now another one in the airline industry that you know other investors might have an interest in would be Delta Airlines. So we do see that you know not only consumer behavior shifting and normalizing, but expect to see you know, a return to the business traveler. And so as that occurs, we think Delta Airlines is the one that's best leveraged for the return of the business traveler. Now, people are also going out a lot more. So as people are going out, we're seeing a return to in-person shopping. So the uh, the malls are getting a lot more foot traffic, and uh, Simon Property Group would be the one that I would highlight there for investors. And then the last one I would mention is uh, Sam Adams or even uh, Anheuser Busch InBev. A lot of people don't necessarily think about you know the beer industry you know really being leveraged to that shift, but what we saw during the pandemic was that as people weren't going out, they were consuming alcohol at home. But when they would consume alcohol at home, they weren't buying you know, the branded products. They were buying you know, the lower margin, you know, non-branded items. But what happens is that when people go out, they are you know, brand conscious and they will in public you know, choose you know, those branded items which have higher margins. So those would be two companies that we actually think will benefit from that shift as well. Okay, so tell us a bit more about Morningstar. What does Morningstar offer and how can listeners find out more? Well, you can always read more of my content on Morningstar.com. Uh, Morningstar is you know, one of the largest global providers of financial research and data out there. And really one of the things that I really enjoy about working with Morningstar is that we are an independent company. You know, we don't have a trading business. We don't have you know, investment banking business. So the way I think about it is that you know, the information that we put out there really is directly for our clients. And you know, we always put investors first. You know, as far as the content and the research that we produce. Mm. And it's inst- institutional grade research for um, ordinary people, really, isn't it? Uh, exactly. And um, we'll also put some uh, links to the 
documents that uh, we're referring to in this podcast as well, so listeners can find out more there as well. Dave Sakara, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you very much, Phil. It's been a great time. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.